I'm Scott Kahn, and this is a special episode of The Orthodox Conundrum. Israel is at war, the likes of which no one of my generation or younger has ever experienced. I don't want to discuss the details of what's happening, as it's constantly changing and being updated. You can get that information from news sources. Instead, today I'll be speaking with Tali Rosenbaum, my friend and co-host of Intimate Judaism, to talk about dealing with the trauma and emotional distress that this has caused. I'm also speaking to David Lang of IsraeliCool.com to get a brief overview of the way that this conflict has been portrayed in the media and over social media, both the good and the distressing. By way of introduction, let me tell our listeners outside of Israel, who may have had scant opportunity to find out what it's been like here, about the past two days as I experienced them. On the morning of Shemini Atzeret, which in Israel is also Simchat Torah, I went to a Vatican minion that began at 6.15. We were five people at home, me, Eliza, and our daughters, Meira, Yaeli, and Batsheva. A number of our kids were not home for Yom Tov. There were no signs that anything was amiss, and I certainly had no idea that things were about to blow up. At 8.15 in the morning, as I stood outside, while the shul said Yisker, we heard explosions overhead. We looked up and saw the telltale smoke entrails that indicated, probably, Iron Dome interceptions. But there were no sirens, so I wasn't really sure what to think. I arrived home at 8.45, and around 9 a.m. the sirens started. We had six over the ensuing three hours, but I still assumed that this was a somewhat typical flare-up around the Gaza border, which happens from time to time. But in the early afternoon, two of our daughters came home from shul and told us that they heard a rumor that the town of Sterot had been invaded. Soon after, some neighbors told us that things were very serious, that, at the time, 20 Israelis were known to have been killed and over a thousand injured. While we didn't have any more sirens for the rest of the day, I could feel myself go as white as a sheet. I kept thinking about Elia Kohen in the fourth parak of Shmuel Aleph, and in fact, let me read those psukim now in translation beginning at Pasuk Yud, Pasuk 10. And so the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated, and every man ran to his tent. The defeat was very crushing. 30,000 infantrymen fell from Israel. The Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Chothi and Pinchas, died. A man from Binyamin ran from the battlefront and reached Shiloh that day with his clothing ripped and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting in a chair next to the road, looking out, as his heart was fearful for the Ark of God. The man arrived to inform the city, and the whole city cried out. Eli heard the sound of the outcry and said, What is the meaning of this loud commotion? And the man hastened to come to tell Eli. Eli was now 98 years old. His eyes had become motionless, and he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battlefront, and I ran from the battlefront today. Eli asked, What is the report, my son? And the newsbearer answered him, saying, Israel ran from before the Philistines, and there was a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Chofni and Pinchas, also died, and the Ark of God was taken. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair, across from the city gate, breaking his neck, and he died. The ultimate example of biblical shock. This was obviously different from that, and yet a sense of shock really did overtake me, and I'm sure everybody else who heard about it. How could this be? Which is the other biblical term that resonates today. Echa, how could this happen? Because it was Shabbat and Yom Tov, we couldn't find out any more information until Shabbat was over. When we checked the news, it was as bad and even worse than we had heard, and it continued to get worse and worse the more that was reported. For the record, it seems as though almost every family has a father, husband, child, child-in-law, brother or sister who's been called up to the army. 
This is not at all like other military campaigns that I've seen in the almost 28 years that I've lived in Israel. By the way, you may hear a little bit of background noise today. That's because our daughter Tali's sister-in-law and her three little kids are staying with us. They live in Sterot, and her husband was called up to the army. From 6.30 on Shabbat morning until a few hours ago, they were unable to leave their bomb shelter, both because of the constant rockets that were falling, and even more, because Gazan terrorists were patrolling the streets and killing any Jews they could find. All day long, they heard gunfire outside, and only a few hours ago, the army told them that they had one hour to get out. So they're staying with us for a while. I don't really want to deal with politics, and the political reality that I'm experiencing is that the societal divisions that are normally so acute, the religious-secular divide, the huge arguments between right and left, have seemingly evaporated completely, if only temporarily. Almost everyone, I think, is on the same page, even though it's a horrible way to be reminded. Let's hope that at least this reminder of our essential unity as a Jewish people won't evaporate so quickly. The only political comment I will make is this. I'm a political centrist in many ways, or perhaps better put, sometimes I align with the right, sometimes with the left, and sometimes with neither or both. I generally try to look at each issue on its own. When it comes to giving away land for peace, and I am careful to say giving away land rather than giving back land, because the term giving back land is historically inaccurate, I generally think that if such a move would genuinely bring peace and an end to the battles between Israel and the Palestinians and our Arab neighbors, I would be willing to do it. I'm also worried about the long-term effects of ruling over a large population of non-citizens. I think it's dangerous, anti-democratic, and a huge problem waiting to happen demographically. It's a moral issue too. I wish it were possible. I wish we could maintain the entire land of Israel as well as our moral sensibilities, but I don't think we can. That said, in order to give away land, there needs to be a reasonable partner with whom we can negotiate. And it has been clear to many Israelis like me who would be willing to give away land that there is no real partner on the other side. The events of the past two days, I think, demonstrate two important truths. First, when people ask why Israel won't make a deal with the Palestinians, the answer is right in front of our eyes. The people who committed these atrocities and applauded them represent a huge percentage of the Palestinian people. There is no one there with whom to negotiate. And second, we can see what happened when Hamas took over Gaza. The results of that have been clear over the past two days, if they weren't before. If Israel did the same with the West Bank or parts of the West Bank, can you be sure that it will be any different? Or will it lead to an even greater slaughter, chas v'shalom, in the future? I'm not saying this to make a political point. I'm pointing it out so that when people ask, why is Israel doing what it's doing, whether regarding the current war or anything that has gone on in the past, understand that Israel is not perfect. Israel is a work in progress. Israel does make mistakes like any country that's trying to actualize its best reality. But people also need to understand that the situation here is not simple. That if somebody offers a seemingly easy solution, it's by definition a solution that won't work. And please never forget the nature of the enemy Israel needs to confront. What we've been seeing from the Gazan residents over the past two days isn't a fight for freedom. It's a murderous opportunity to slaughter as many Jews as possible. Jews slaughtered while attending a festival, going to synagogue, eating in a dining room, spending time with their families, or even while running to bomb shelters. If these people who slaughter Jews are those whom you support, 
your moral compass is horribly askew. And that has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with simple right and wrong. Again, this has nothing to do with whether Israel should give away land. It has to do with accepting that the reality is very complicated. As Holly pointed out in this episode, everything has changed. There was before, and now there's after. I don't know what the future holds, but I can only encourage everyone who cares about the people and state of Israel to pray, to send messages of support, and to publicly support Israel in what is likely going to be a long and painful war against an enemy who has no interest in compromise. Tali Rosenbaum, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. My pleasure. This is a different sort of interaction than we normally have when we co-host Intimate Judaism. And before I start, I'll say we actually were planning on releasing an already recorded episode of Intimate Judaism that we have on our computers right now. But given the situation, we felt it was more apropos to talk about some of the emotional issues that people may be going through right now dealing with the horrible situation that we're confronting. And we will release that Intimate Judaism when the time is right. I'll ask you at the beginning, Tali, how do people deal with this? There's so many of us in Israel, outside of Israel, who are emotionally broken. The term I've been using is shattered, shocked. There are just so many emotions swirling around, frankly, none of them good. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with this emptiness, whatever it is that we're feeling? And I guess I'll start off with talking about people like you and me who are sitting here in Israel. Right. So let's acknowledge this. This is probably the most difficult thing we've ever had to experience that I can remember. I mean, we finished the Chag last night and turned on the news and we're, you know, we had heard things trickling in rumors and I feel so bad. Also, it's like still Yontif in America and everybody who's there who is going to be listening to this is only now getting all the details. It must be really hard for, as we're recording right now, it's Yontif and people are still unable to access their media. So that's got to be really hard. That's also a level. I would say that there's so many levels of experiencing this very difficult time. There's those people who have actually experienced and are still experiencing an actual threat of death, being taken over, being shot at, really having their lives threatened, their families. And, you know, we're feeling a great deal of helplessness. We're feeling a great deal of shock. We're feeling a great deal of horror. There are some horrible things happening. And it's important to recognize that all of these feelings are very, very normal and very valid. And being able to talk about these feelings is also important. It's important to be able to share what it is that we're feeling. And it's very normal to feel these feelings. We both have children who have been called up, so we're worried about them. But we also want to be able to act as parents and grandparents in a way that provides soothing, encouraging, letting children know that they are being taken care of. There are adults who are taking care of them. And so being able to kind of navigate your own sense of helplessness along with your role as a parent and your role as a partner and your other roles that you have, your role as children, if you have elderly parents, people do need to have tools to navigate themselves emotionally in these situations. So can you offer some of those tools? What are some examples of the kinds of tools that people should try to inculcate in themselves right now? What sorts of things should we non-professionals be thinking and doing when we're interacting with those whom we love? Well, I would start out 
really before I go straight into tools, I, I just want to kind of explain a little bit about how stressful reactions work so that we understand a little bit why we're feeling the emotions, but also the sensations that we're feeling. Because when we are under threat, our bodies are wired to react in a stress response. And a stress response physiologically, reflexively, just goes ahead and does what it needs to do to allow us to either fight or to run away. So in a normal situation, stress is normal. A traumatic response, as they say, is normal. You know, we want to be able to respond to a traumatic situation. So we have to have these things happening to us. And what normally happens is that when we have a stress response and we do fight or we do run away, we can recover. We can recover. And most of the time people do recover from these scary situations. When we have these feelings, but we're not really in that situation where we can fight or we can run away. We are just having these responses because of what we're hearing about, because of what we're worried about. These responses stay in our bodies. And so when we're feeling shortness of breath or when we're feeling this tension in our bodies, it's because we've kind of soaked up those very normal responses, but we don't have anything to do with them. We have no place to put them. So first of all, we want to be able to be aware of our body responses, and we want to be able to shake off that tension. And shaking off that tension can be done with exercise. If you feel yourself shaking, then just keep shaking, let it out of your body. So you can dance, you can go for a run, you can do exercises, or if you need more calming you can do deep breathing. You can do some self-care as much as you can. Obviously, if you're living in a place where there are sirens going off every three minutes, it's not going to be very adaptive to decide to take a bubble bath, right? Um, so right. you have to kind of choose what you can do. Uh, a lot of people find it very, very helpful to seek very creative and proactive ways to be active, to help Okay, not just to wallow in their fear and anxiety, but to go out there and volunteer in any way that they're really good at doing. So for some people, it might be cooking or baking or making care packages or driving people around or hosting people in their homes, like you said you were doing, Kalakavo to you. And other people might not be good at those things, but they might be good at other things. Uh, maybe they're good at listening and they can be on a hotline and just hear people out and listen to them. And when you are somebody who wants to help other people who are under stress, who are feeling very, very, very overwhelmed by a situation, and you want to help your children also, or you want to help others, you also need to understand a little bit about how stress works and how to help those people. In Israel, we're very, very well programmed regarding traumatic situations or stressful situations. We want to be really careful about using concepts like PTSD, post-trauma. I have post-trauma. Nobody's having post-trauma yet. We're in the We're trauma. in the trauma right now. And it is normal to have these feelings and normal to have these responses. And let's not throw around post-trauma too much because words are important. And words that we want to use are words like resilience and courage and strength and reassurance. We want to have as much routine as possible. We want to avoid 
watching too much news, sitting there for hours, watching news, watching these films of these terrible things that are happening to people. That's not good for you. I, I was talking to somebody about, and I said, you know, it's like pornography. You have to filter. Just like pornography is not good for your neshama, too much of watching these awful things happening before your eyes over and over again are not good either. However, you do need to know what's going on. You need to find that balance between knowing what's going on and not overdoing it. So this is going to be true also in your interactions with your children. How much do you share with them? How do you reassure them when you really can't? How are you supposed to tell your kids that everything is going to be all right when everything is really not all right? I think that that's really something that people very much grapple with. And I think that that's also really important to understand that children, you can't lie to them. You can't tell them they're safe. Everything is going to be fine because you're going to lose your trust. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to feel secure with you if you're lying to them. Obviously, you have to choose the way you talk to your kids in accordance to their level of understanding and what kind of kid they are. But what's really important, first of all, as a parent and also as somebody who wants to help other people is to be grounded yourself. When I say grounded, I mean staying present with yourself, being calm, being able to calm yourself, having your own techniques to be able to recognize that there's stress in your body, that you need to calm yourself down. And once you are calm, that really makes a very big difference in being able to help other people. So let's say we're talking about your children, being able to say to them, you know, Israel has fights, Israel has conflict, just like you fight with your brother sometimes, or, you know, people don't get along sometimes. We have fights with our neighbors, and sometimes we get into very bad fights with them. And when that happens, there's going to be a situation where you might hear a siren, and the siren is there because it's telling us that we have to go into a safe place. So every time there's a siren, we have to run into the safe place. And what you need to know is that, yes, our enemies are trying to fight with us, but there are soldiers and there are people who are in charge also of protecting us and choosing with your child, what is your favorite toy or what is your favorite object that helps you feel safe that you're used to that you like and you know always taking it with them into the shelter and being honest with them that something is different something is going on it's okay to talk about their feelings validating those feelings and also letting them know that they're not in charge but you are in charge the army is in charge there are people in charge and that helps to keep them safe and that's if you're talking to your children. If you are trying to help a friend, like I said before, there's a lot of different protocols for, this isn't therapy, by the way, this is like, you know, first aid, emotional first aid. This is something that everybody can do for everybody. You don't have to have any kind of special therapeutic skills to help other people. It's just really understanding um, what people need during an incredibly stressful time this is likely to be one of those life altering times. This is the, just today, there's so many names of people. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's an unimaginably stressful period that pretty much is the definition 
of trauma. It's it's a watershed moment. Everything from now on, it's going to be nothing what, will be the same. Nothing will be the same. It's before and after this. It's That's sort of what it after. is. Yeah, which is really what is a trauma. And we are traumatized. We are going through a trauma. This does not mean that we will have PTSD. And knowing that, knowing that we have resilience, knowing that we can get through this, knowing that we will recover, that's really important. So what were you about to say before about helping friends? Okay. So what I was going to say is that there's a protocol. I I like the protocol that they use here in Israel. It's called ma'aseh. It's divided into mechuyavut, which means commitment, idud, and then encouragement. I'll just say it in English. It'll be easier. So first, when somebody is in this kind of state of shock, you want to be able to be committed to them. You say to them, I'm here, I'm with you. Because the worst thing is when you feel alone and you feel like helpless. So if you're helping somebody, you want to be able to say to them, okay, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here if you need me. Kind of making that emotional commitment to that person. What we also want to do is we want to keep that person active, okay? So, and in general, we know that if you are wallowing in anxiety and in what's going to happen and how do we know we're safe and how do we, the best thing to do to get out of that is to be active, to volunteer, to look for things to do, to be helpful to the cause. So helping, encouraging people, well, what can you do now? What can you do now? We also want to keep people, and this is if we go back to whether this is a traumatic moment for them, they're in a danger, they're in a scary place. So we also want to be able to get them to access their cognitive brain. We don't want to be too much in the emotional place. We want to be able to kind of ground them by saying, okay, um, how many people are with you? Look around. How many people do you see? Or do you want to drink water or do you want to have a Coke? Do you want something that's going to make them think? Because we want to use the thinking brain as much as possible. And we also want to let them, you know, we want to construct the event. You know, there was a shooting here. You're okay. You seem to be fine. The police are here. The soldiers are here. And it looks like the event is over. The event has finished. Like the immediate danger is gone. Like when somebody knows that the immediate danger is gone, something in their system can begin to slowly come out of that fight or flight place. So kind of knowing that there is kind of a beginning, a middle and an end in a way to the acute phase of stress Also knowing that many of us are not experiencing a stress in that way. In other words, there are levels of experiencing trauma right now. Okay, there are the people who have spent time completely occupied in kibbutzim and settlements where they have been terrified and are still terrified if they're still alive. I mean, you know, the people have gone through tremendously traumatic events, and obviously it's going to take a lot of time to be able to heal from that. There are people who are not in any immediate danger to the extent that we're not in any immediate danger just being here, mm-hmm. um, but they're not. Like we're here in Beit Shemesh, thank God we're safe. Nothing happened here and hopefully nothing will happen here, but there's still a great deal of stressful feelings that we're carrying with us just from knowing that these things have happened and are happening. We have a lot of sadness. We have a lot of grief. People are dying and we've already heard names and it's really, really sad. And it's knowing that we're a community, having faith, 
being able to help each other in our community, that's a very strong variable for resilience and for healing is knowing that we have friends, we have community members, we have people, we're all in this together. For people who are religious or are spiritual and do feel that prayer will help them, prayer is a real resource. It's very, very resourceful. Other people do well with some sort of mindfulness, some sort of relaxation or meditation. But I think that social support is so important during this time. That makes a lot of sense what you said and what you talked about before in terms of finding some way to help. I often cite him, but I will say this very well-known statement from Mr. Rogers, when something traumatic happens, something very, very bad happens, and there are bad people doing bad things. Remember, he's speaking to children. His line always was, look for the helpers. He was actually quoting his mother, who told him that when he was a child. Look for the helpers, because that can give you a little bit more encouragement to see that there are good people as well. What you're saying, Tali, sounds to me a little bit like the other side of that coin. Not only look for the helpers, but be a helper. By being a helper yourself, you're able to aside from the fact you can dissipate anxiety by doing something, by being active, you can actually help the situation to the degree you can, whether it's baking for soldiers or anything else, whatever it might be. That's what it sounds like to me, at least. Yeah, well, it doesn't even matter what your motives are. I mean, you can have truly altruistic motives, or you can have motives that I need to do something for me. It doesn't matter. They're both equally legitimate and valid, and they're helpful, and they're helpful for others, and they're helpful for yourself. I want to ask about people who don't live in Israel who aren't able to do that as much, meaning people who are listening to this perhaps and are in New York or Florida or Massachusetts or California or anywhere else outside of Israel where they can't, so to speak, bake cookies for the soldiers or house people who have been displaced. That's not a possibility. So on the one hand, there might be a sense of security, less fear for their personal safety. But on the other hand, there is greater sense of a greater sense of distance from what's going on here. And that can be very difficult, especially, especially for people who have immediate family members who are in Israel. And of course, we believe that all Israel is a single organism, even those who don't still feel a kinship with people who are in Israel. So what would you recommend, Tali, to people who are in the States or are in England or anywhere else and are listening to this and feel helpless, even if they don't feel as insecure about their own safety? I think that's a great question because a lot of colleagues who are not observant have been writing and, you know, today is still Hog in America, but once Hog comes out and the people who haven't been on their devices start to write in, we're going to feel that. We're going to feel so much helplessness from the part of our families and people who are so supportive to Israel. And it, it's very, very difficult for them. It's very difficult for them to feel like, what can we do? We're so far away. And they want to know, and they want concrete ways of being able to help. And the same thing applies. You know, we're, we also want to validate for them. It must be really hard for you that you're not here and you're so worried and you had a two-day yontif and it's got to have been really tough. I don't like the kind of, I don't know, people write things on social media about, the Americans, even the American, the non-Israelis who are here for the Chagim and, you know, see, this is what life is really like. And there, there's kind of like this um, sense of arrogance sometimes around people who live in Israel. But I don't, I think that's very judgmental. I mean, it's true that our lives are more difficult in the sense that our sons are, but a lot of people who live outside of Israel, they also have children who come and serve. We really do have to have a lot of empathy for everybody and for what they're feeling. What can they do? That's a great question. I mean, I think that I've seen 
I'm, I'm not such an expert in terms of what can people do. I've, I saw some interesting posts about things like supporting Israel on your social media and talking to people, keeping in touch with people who need, if you're a professional and you can offer your services. I know that Israel is looking for professionals, looking for doctors, looking for therapists. And so I believe that just as within hours, so many resources have been gathered to help and to volunteer in so many ways, I'm almost positive that that's happening already and is going to continue to happen. So look around for ways that you could provide whatever help you can, whether it's emotional aid or whether it's technical resources, whether it's financial resources, whether it's just moral support, all the colleagues who have gone on social media and put Israeli flags on there and have written me. And I think that's been very heartwarming and it's felt very good to know that our friends, Jews and non-Jews outside of Israel are thinking about us here and are worried about us. I think that's very helpful. Yeah, I do too. And in fact, after this interview, I'll be speaking with David Lang about that exact issue, about the support or lack thereof, depending on the quarters that's been going on on social media outside of Israel. Tali, because we are the host of Intimate Judaism, I do want to mention one more thing before we conclude, something from Ravioni Rosenzweig from here in Beit Shemesh, who's been a guest on this podcast before. I'll just translate this Facebook post that he put up because I think it's interesting. I'd like to get your feelings about this. He wrote a post about questions in the time of war. So here's my rough translation as I'm looking at it right now in Hebrew. Today I was asked if a woman who is in Nida, who is not allowed therefore to touch her husband according to Jewish law, is allowed to hug her husband who's been called up to the army before he leaves. I answered that she can, she certainly can, because apart from the technical matter that hugging in this case involves both of them being clothed, which obviously takes away some of the sexual element of it, that was my interpolation, not his, in the essence of the matter, there is a real fundamental difference. Ravioni then quotes Rabbi Yitzchak de Leon in a perush called Megillat Esther on the Rambam Sefer Mitzvot, on the Mitzvah that talks about the separation of the sexes not touching each other. This is what Ravioni quotes him saying. This prohibition of touching implies specifically when it's hugging and kissing, when it is chibat bia, which means sexual in nature. V'hu lo haya ki'im derech kurva. And he's not doing it except for familial hugging, a different kind of style. So Ravioni explains this as saying that the connection between a husband and wife is not just a romantic connection, it's also a family connection. When touch between them is not a sexual type of touch, but rather a familial, meaning a love of a family, a spousal type of touch, as opposed to sexual, there is more reason to be lenient as necessary in this case. He's not saying that we can ignore the laws in general, of course. He means in the particular circumstance where a spouse is going off to war, that's why he's willing to be more lenient. And he then says, and there is no greater emotional need, whether it's for the husband or the wife, than an embrace like this before someone is going out into the military campaign in order to guard the people in the land. And may Hashem guard all of our soldiers. And I think that was a very important post that he put up there, a very brave post, because unfortunately, I'm sure there's plenty of backlash, but he's looking at things the way they are. And I reposted this on my own page, and I'd like to get your feedback on this. Well, what do you think, I think? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to surprise me, are you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just a shame that 
it's not just common sense. I mean, I understand the importance of having a rabbi come and say this and also to demonstrate from sources and to explain to people that touch, there are so many different kinds of touch and there's the touch that comes along with this kind of existential fear of loss. And it's not about, I wanna take your clothes off now and get into bed with you. It's about, I'm afraid. I have so much fear of what's going to happen to you. And the way I would look at that is, of course, just it's so human to want to hug your husband goodbye, whether you're menstruating or not, before he goes off to war. That's just me. But I do understand. And I also saw from the comments that he got a lot of pushback, Ravioni. People found it threatening or upsetting. How dare you make such a statement? I guess that people do feel very strongly about keeping the restrictions as they are. I'm quite happy because to me, it just is human and, and natural and makes a lot of sense. I do think it's a good time to say that touch is an important, it's important to hug your kids. It's important to hug your partner, but it's also important to talk about it because not everybody wants that. You know, we're all I think we started talking about this in the episode that we're not releasing yet, but we're all kind of attached differently. And some of us really just are more avoidant attachers in the sense that when we're feeling stressed, we don't want hugs. We just want to self-soothe and other people are more anxious attachers where they need a lot of hugs and need a lot of soothing and need a lot of security and soothing from the spouse. So I think it's really important to communicate what it is that we do want and need in terms of physical touch or physical affection or physical soothing. Um, and that's true for all our family members and friends. Okay. Well, Tali, thank you very much for joining me today. I think this is very, very helpful. I know for me, it was very helpful. And I'm looking forward, so to speak, to implementing some of the ideas you mentioned, because it affects all of us, whether we're in Israel or whether we're outside of Israel. So thank you very much again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on Orthodox Conundrum again. David Lang, thank you very much for joining me today on this difficult day on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It is indeed a very difficult, a tragic day. By the time this is released, which will only be in a few hours, the news inevitably will have changed significantly because it's constantly changing. We're constantly hearing different reports. Things are not good. This is the type of situation which we can only have nightmares about, and it actually happened. So instead of dealing with the news, which people can get from other sources, I'd like to speak to you specifically about the reactions that people are having internationally to the situation here, because in some ways, as we've seen in previous wars slash operations, many of the people have framed this particular situation in ways which are unfair, for example, calling people who are slaughtering innocents militants, that's just an easy example. But on the other hand, there are some positive aspects of the international reaction. We've seen certain people actually really support Israel in ways which have been very positive. So why don't I hand it to you? Talk to me about what you've seen in terms of the reaction to this war so far. Yes, Scott. So you've, of course, got the usual suspects with their media bias. As you mentioned, you have those that are referring to these cowardly murderers as militants, for example. The New York Times is one example. Reuters referred to them as fighters, uh, as did AP, the Associated Press. That they're the, they're the low-hanging fruit that we can mention, but there's other examples like BBC World. In their coverage, they chose to show buildings on fire in Israel and Palestinian Arabs fleeing their homes. That's how they chose to depict the story. As we know, the untold horrors that have been going on in the south with entire Israeli families kidnapped, being displayed naked and dead in the streets of Gaza by Hamas, 
They didn't show that, of course. Um, the Guardian also prioritised the terrorists first when they mentioned the casualty figures. They mentioned the casualties in Gaza, which the majority of which we can assume to have been actual terrorists and not civilians. Um, CNN, they mentioned, they, they, they went the euphemistic approach. They mentioned that Israel is at war. Okay, thank you for that, CNN. And uh, another common perpetrator of media bias is CNN's Christiane Amanpour. And she was downplaying Hamas atrocities by characterizing the attack as like a round five of Hamas and Israel going at it or something to that effect. Like this kind of tit for tat. No, it wasn't a tit for tat. This was a, a, a murderous assault on Jewish civilians during the Jewish Shabbat and holiday of Simchat Torah. That's what it was. Um, other examples I can mention off the top of my head, Scott, are uh, the, World, the Wall Street Journal uh, mentioning Hamas having indicated it would be willing to accept a two-state solution and suggesting Israel had escalated hostilities, which is crazy. And uh, one last example, the Irish Times was mentioning how Israel was preparing for an unprecedented military assault on Gaza Strip following a surprise attack by Hamas. So they led with this warmongering image of Israel rather than getting to the, the core of the problem, which were the Hamas murders of innocents. So there, there's some egregious, egregious examples of media bias that we've seen. We've seen these sorts of things in the past, but it's even more disturbing when you look at what has gone on now. It's it, it, it's taken the next level, and hopefully I'm making sense because on a personal level, Scott, and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way, I can hardly get words out of my mind, mouth right now. I'm, I'm in complete despair. I'm feeling powerless, and my, my head's a muddle. I understand, and I think you represent the, not the majority, but the totality of the feeling on the streets throughout Israel, left, right, and center, religious and secular. This is a feeling of being completely shattered. In my own life, I'm 52 years old. I don't remember any other time anything like this was experienced. I know that people have used the example of 9-11 to describe this is Israel's 9-11, and it's not a bad comparison. I don't know really how much you can compare different things, but that feeling of emptiness, helplessness, and the inability to believe what you're seeing and just the fear of the future as much as the terror and grief over what happened, it's very, very scary. So I completely understand and appreciate your ability and willingness to talk about it, even as all of us have our mouths very dry today. Let me ask you, perhaps on a more positive note, we have seen people and governments, surprisingly perhaps, come out in support of Israel very openly, just as an example, the most obvious example, because I am an American, the Biden administration came out and very strongly supported Israel using the words full stop, not but, or let's lessen hostilities, nothing like that, which was positive. Last night in Berlin, the Brandenburg Gate was lit up with an Israeli flag. These are obviously, they, they don't change the situation here, but at least it makes the sense of being alone feel less acute, perhaps. Could you give some examples of what you've seen in terms of governments and others coming out in favor of Israel in ways that have been, if not surprising, but at least encouraging? Yeah. Actually, I want to just first of all reiterate the Biden statement, because Biden had to many Israel supporters hasn't seen to be, or isn't perceived to be the most, uh, the strongest of Israel supporters. But yeah, I was actually impressed, you know, to be fair. I was impressed with this statement because in the past, and even with the stronger supporters of Israel like George W. Bush, um, Republican presidents of the past, 
I remember, I seem to remember many statements of the ilk, you know, we support Israel's right to self-defense, but we urge restraint on both sides, something with that qualifier. And what I liked about Biden's statements is, he, yeah, he mentioned Israel has the right to defend itself, full stop. And that is something I don't remember the last time something like that uh, uh, occurred. I might be wrong. Maybe it has occurred in the past, but that it did strike me, especially given my own perception of Biden as a kind of a weaker president when it comes to supporting Israel. So, yeah, that was something that was noteworthy to me. In addition to governments, uh, you know, I've seen much support. Uh, the Brandenburg Gate, of course, I saw in the Australian city of Brisbane. They lit some things up there as well. We had the Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who is actually kind of anti-Israel, but she came out with quite a strong statement. Although, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, there was a bit of that both sides restraint uh, qualifier there. But nevertheless, it was more than I expected from her. And on a different angle, I've noticed, you know, because I, I follow celebrities, not not because I'm a let's say, a, a celebrity chaser by any means, but because I'm in the Israel advocacy world, I understand that they've got a lot of pull. We're talking about celebrities with tens of millions of followers, uh, celebrities whose numbers of followers outnumber the number of Jews in the world tenfold. And that's just what, like one celebrity. <laughs> so I see the importance of celebrity support. And normally, you know, you have the, the usual suspects that will, and they're usually Jewish or Israeli, that will support Israel. But here we've seen celebrities come out of the woodwork that normally I haven't seen them, you know, uh, in their support of Israel. Can you give me some examples, please? Yeah, no. So you, the, the ones that we, we used to is Gal Gadot, of course. She's the one that comes up a lot at supporting Israel. But, you know, I saw people like Jamie Lee Curtis. I've seen she's supported the Jewish people before. Her, her father, Tony, of course, was Jewish. But that doesn't mean anything in this day and age uh, in terms of supporting Israel. But she came out very strongly. There's a bunch of younger celebrities. I won't mention the names who's like me. Most of your listeners probably won't even know who they are, but I've checked it and they've got like very large followings. Um, who else? I'm just trying to think, you know, Sophia Ritchie uh, is one example. You've got uh, David Beckham's, uh, you know, the, the soccer player, his daughter-in-law, Nicola Peltz, I believe is her name. You've got Chris Jenner, you know, the Kardashian matriarch. Um, who else can I mention? Zoe Deutsch is an actress, Nina Dobrev, Jennifer Love Hewitt. It's okay if you haven't heard of these people. Trust me, they're, they've got big following. Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, Kylie Jenner, Amy Schumer, she's a Jewish comedian, Ashley Tisdale, Mandy Moore, not Jewish. And I'm just trying to think, Josh Groban is very well known. Josh, Josh Gad, he's uh, also a, a Jewish actor. And Paris Jackson, that was my, that's Michael Jackson's adopted daughter. And she said, actually, that was interesting. She said, I'm Jewish. So I believe that her mother was biologically Jewish. So these are just the sorts of examples. So from Jews and non-Jews alike. And again, as I mentioned, you know, I've highlighted this on my website because I think it's important, especially to keep uh, our sanity. I mentioned to you before the show how important it is to focus on these positives. We all need to look after ourselves and keep our sanity. If we just focus on all, everyone out to get us, which a lot of the time it feels like, we can lose our sanity. So I do think, you know, maybe some listeners will think it's a, a bit uh, vacuous to focus on celebrity support of Israel. I would argue it's important because one of their influence, and they can influence a lot of young people positively towards Israel, young people that haven't made up their minds and they don't know anything about this conflict. So it is important. And also just to keep our own sanity, focus on some positive support for Israel. I definitely think that's true. And as you mentioned, 
perhaps the concept of celebrity support sounds vacuous, but in the world of social media where they have, as you said, more followers than there are Jews in the world, their support actually can have a tremendous impact. And particularly, we always worry about the view and the vision of Israel among young people outside of Israel. You know, obviously we worry about everybody, but particularly young people, the ones who are the future, if they don't care about Israel, then that could be very dangerous. So if celebrities who are probably more influential among younger people can come out in positive ways towards Israel, that can only be a good thing when it comes to this. Yeah. And I think just another point is that because we've seen these celebrities that normally don't stand up for Israel, it's just another indicator of how they've crossed all lines. We believe they've crossed the lines many times in the past, but this is the sort of uh, barbaric, wanton, bloodthirsty murder that it's hard for reasonable people to ignore or justify in any way. And therefore, that's why I think we're seeing celebrities coming out and perhaps risking, uh, you know, their popularity amongst many of their of their fans coming out strongly in support of Israel. Okay. David, just before we go, any final thoughts before we conclude this uh, short interview? Yeah, I just, um, my, my final thoughts are, let's, let's um, pray together for the safety of our soldiers, the safety of our civilians, the safety of our civilians that have been captured and are still in Gaza with Hamas. May they be, please, Hashem, may they be brought back alive. And let's um, strive for unity. If anything comes out of this, anything positive, it's hard to even say the words positive and, and this situation. But I, I pray also to Hashem that all the divisions that we've seen in our society over the past months um, are resolved. It's horrible that it might take something like this to do it, but at least please may something positive come out of it. Because if we're united, we can't be defeated. Only if we're divided can we be defeated. Okay, and David, finally, can you just tell us your website so that people want to hear more about media reaction to Israel, they can look it up. Sure. Uh, my website is israelicool.com, I-S-R-A-E-L-L-Y-C-O-O-L.com. And on that website, you'll see at the top, there's links to the different social media um, accounts that I have. I've, I've been more, um, in, during this conflict, more active on social media because of the timely nature of the information and also my inability to construct longer posts at this okay. point in time. Understood. Okay, David Lang, Basarotavot, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, 
or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>